radio is so much more than these boxes sitting on the shelves. There's the people who, you know, there's, the, there's what comes out of the speaker. And every process is used to produce that. And I said, if we're going to survive, you know, we're going to have to take what has been given us here and expand on it. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reismandel. Hello, Paul Reismandel. My name is Eric Klein. I'm so happy to be here for another week of Radio Survivor. And we're joined on the line by Radio Survivor's own Jennifer Waits. Welcome, Jennifer. Hello. Great to be here. And Jennifer's going to bring us an interesting tour. We're doing another tour this week, a radio exhibit, museum exhibit, at the San Francisco airport. In the airport, behind security, there are hundreds of radios and radio-related things on display. Radio history at the airport. It sounds like there's a museum that just happens to be at the airport. At the San Francisco International Airport. So, Jennifer, you're going to bring us a description of this. You've written about it. Also, you have an interview with the curator of uh, that exhibit, and you've also talked with the president of the California Historical Radio Society, who helped provide a lot of the actual radios and stuff that's that's in this exhibit. We'll also have an update about pirate radio, because uh, there's been a lot of, it's been in the news quite a bit lately, and uh, Chairman Pai of the FCC was recently speaking at the National Association of Broadcasters, and he also brought up the issue. So after we do these tours, we'll talk a little bit about pirate radio. But first, Jennifer, you wanted to mention uh, a celebration coming up. Yes. National High School. Well, not national. High School Radio Week is happening April 21st to 28th. And this is kind of an extension of High School Radio Day, which had been happening in April pretty much Every year for the past number of years, this year it's extended to a week and is being spearheaded by the National High School Radio Network, which is a group of high school radio stations that share programming once a week where they alternate and and do a high school radio show that gets carried on stations within their network all over the country. Oh, wow. I didn't know about this network. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. So they're going to be celebrating high school radio week and probably doing some special programming for that. So I just wanted to point that out. High School Radio Network has a website, hsradionetwork.com, where you can find out some more information. Okay, we'll have that linked in our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 138. Of course, we have notes about everything we talk about on this show, but you can definitely get that link to the High School Radio Network. And they're celebrating it for an entire week. And and I think high school radio, we talk about it here at Radio Survivor. You write about it at radiosurvivor.com. But I think it's something that people often forget exists and is important. Yeah. My favorite high school radio fact that I learned from Jennifer Waits was the just how how early on in the game high schoolers were were making radio. Back in the 1920s here in Portland, Oregon, if I'm not Mm -hmm. mistaken, there was a radio station founded by high school students. Uh, and th- who led the way? It wasn't, uh, they weren't dragged k- kicking and screaming into this boring radio world. They were spearheading uh, their their contribution to, to the culture of radio uh, as high school seniors, I believe. And that, and that station's still on the air here in Portland. So there's a, yeah, lot, there's a Paul, long history of high school radio in the United States. It's true, yeah. And Paul was on that tour with me. And we've also talked about 
you know, one of the folks behind the high school radio, National High School Radio Network is Ralph Martin from VCS Radio. And we've talked to him on the podcast about his very interesting high school radio station that is low power FM and HD. So there are many connections in our small radio community. Indeed, and we'll have a link to that interview in our show notes. And just a note about KBPS, that's the AM station here in Portland, Oregon, that is out of Benson Polytechnic High School. And I was tuning around the AM dial the other night, and I often come across, and late at night, they're usually just running uh, automated music. But what I but tuned into... But at night, into, it's easier to tune in AM radio, right, Paul? Uh, yeah, although their station is very clear all the time hmm. here, because uh, it, you know, it's local. So I'm, I'm tuning around, and I don't hear music, and I'm like, is this KBPS? Because it was maybe 10 o'clock. It was a live school board meeting. Huh. And I thought, now that's cool. I, I, I knew in the back of my head, I remember being told that they air live school board meetings, but I was also a little bit like, oh, those poor school board members still meeting at 10 p.m. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, that was a, in my previous life, that was my, that was my uh, radio job. And um, a lot of those city meetings, uh, they would, you know, they would go, they'd go all night. Yeah. Because, you know, democracy. Because democracy. Well, it sounded good. So anyway, uh, coming up beginning April 21st, is that correct, is uh, the High School Radio Week. So a yep, great time to listen to and celebrate high school radio. Exactly. The 21st to the 28th. Well, so let's jump into our uh, feature here, Jennifer, our feature tour. So tell us about this radio exhibit that's in the SFO airport. Well, it's amazing. I guess, first of all, the San Francisco International Airport has had a museum since 1980, and it's throughout the airport. It's a very large airport with a lot of different terminals. There are exhibit spaces, both behind security and in public areas that anybody can access. And and so at any given time, there are countless exhibits. There are 25 different galleries at the airport. It's an unusual museum in that it's at an airport and is actually accredited by the American Alliance of Museums. Uh, and so it's the first and only accredited museum in an airport. And, and that gives it special privileges so it can borrow materials from larger institutions uh, because, you know, it's considered to be a world-class museum. It, it's interesting. Over the years, I've noticed exhibits in the airport but often when we're traveling through an airport, we're in obviously a, in a rush, um, often stressed about making it to our flight or making it to our destination. So I've seen bits and pieces of exhibits that I thought were really cool at the airport in the past, like vintage typewriters. Um, there was an airplane themed album art exhibit once that I remember seeing, um, but but recently, a few friends started sending me messages about this radio exhibit that had just opened. So they had passed through and noticed it. And and so I immediately wanted to get in there and see this exhibit, even if I didn't have a flight. So it's a massive exhibit in one of the largest exhibit spaces in the airport. It's in Terminal 3. So the, the exhibit is called On the Radio, and it has... 27 different cases full of radio-related items. So ranging from 1920s crystal radios to 1970s novelty radios. So there's some traditional cases in this kind of center area 
that you can walk through. And then it's bordered by moving sidewalks or people movers, as the curator described them. So people are being moved in these walking sidewalks on both sides of the exhibit. And along adjacent to the people movers, you have other items from the exhibit, including uh, vintage photographs of radio studios that have been colorized, that are enlarged along along the wall. So if you're if you're just traveling on the People Mover, you can look at these amazing photos of vintage radio stations. And then if you're on another People Mover, you can see what's the backside of some of these exhibit cases. And there are 1920s illustrated covers of of a radio magazine. So this this glimpse at how radio was depicted on the cover of a radio magazine in the 1920s. Mm. And then if you're simply walking around within within the exhibits, you can see vacuum tubes, materials from the early history of radio. So crystal radios, like I mentioned, um, cases devoted to particular types of radios. So Bakelite radios, uh, radios that have a mirrored design. There's a whole case about World's Fair and expos and um, microphones, uh, things from radio shows, including board games from popular radio shows, novelty radios, uh, both vintage and more modern, say from like the seventies. <laughs> you know, when you talk about this uh, being on the people movers, I have this Jetson sort of picture in my mind, right? Uh, of like this is the the museum of a future. You don't have to walk; you just yeah. stand on on the people mover, and it brings you past all the exhibits. But you right. had a, you had a chance to talk with uh, Daniel Calderon, right? Who's a curator of this exhibit there, and he actually took you on a tour of the of the exhibit itself. So we'll go ahead and uh, listen to uh, how uh, Daniel Calderon uh, described the exhibit. You've got a case on Bakelite radios, case on mirrored radios, case on coin-operated radios, case on novelty radios. Uh, speaking about the different uh, aspects of design and technology and radios and also weaving in uh, pop culture and uh, the history of broadcasting and the history of radios themselves. And he also talked a little bit more about some of these uh, very specific elements of the things that you get to see uh, when you're there at the exhibit. So we've got various elements um, in each one of the cases. We may have uh, photos that will go with the different radios and artifacts that are in the case. And then we also have these visual graphic elements, the pylon graphics, uh, large graphics. We've dedicated those to historic images of people listening to the radio to give it, I think, more of a, a, a personal um, a personal flair. Uh, we've got uh, people mover photo essay uh, they're images that John Schneider has done, hand-colored images of uh, radio broadcasting. So essentially you've got the history of radio broadcasting in a photo essay. And then on the, the back walls, of actually the back part of the exhibit that you would see if you're traveling on the People Mover, we've got uh, the covers of Radio Magazine from the 1920s, which are just these fantastic illustrations. I think some of the yeah. best illustrations of, of, of radio that I've ever, I've ever seen. And that's Daniel Calderon. He's the curator at the... Uh SFO Museum and they're on the radio exhibit. And so Jennifer, as a as somebody who's in the airport, I'm thinking as a traveler, kind of what's the experience? All of a sudden, uh, you're you're moving through terminals and 
you see all these radios is how does how does did you get a sense did you see your fellow travelers or i guess you aren't traveling but you see travelers moving through are they paying attention you know is it sort of passive or do you do you, do you kind of get the sense of the people kind of like, like wait wait what what's what is all this stuff do they suddenly pay attention yeah, I thought about that a lot. And I mean, it was also interesting to be at the airport when I wasn't traveling because I felt incredibly relaxed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, most people are traveling on the people movers. And so they're only catching a glimpse of the exhibit. They're only catching the photo essay and then the radio magazines and maybe maybe spotting some of the radios in the center, you know, of this large space that people are traveling through. But there were there were some people that were wandering through when we were there and and I was listening um so there's a separate gallery the- space then so you have the things that are kind of where people move through where the people movers are the moving sidewalks but is there a separate gallery space uh, along in yeah, there as well? Yeah, it's hard it's hard to describe but it's it's an open area so you can choose, you know, you can choose to go on a people mover or you can choose to walk um, through where the exhibit is, uh, which is in the middle. It's in between these two people movers. See, so, um, it's, it's quite a distance. So some people, um, don't feel like walking. So they just ride on the people mover. Uh, but people who are either would rather walk or, uh, want to see the exhibit would just walk through this large open area where the exhibit space is. It, it probably depends on how much time you have to spend at the airport that day. Whether or yeah. not you're going to avail yourself of the opportunity to check out this radio exhibit, this history of radio exhibit at the San Francisco yeah, but airport. Yeah, if you've got a long layover, yeah. which I have often had at SFO, which is often a gateway to the Portland airport, I've yeah. seen that gallery space, though I've seen other exhibitions. Yeah, and I mean, I'm actually, I'm encouraging people I know who are interested in radio to plan ahead and and plan to spend some time because I spent <laughs> over an hour and a half in there. Um you know, there's save, a lot. Save some money on your next flight. Extend the layover in San Francisco International Airport. Uh, how long is this exhibit uh, going to be up at the airport, Jennifer? It's up through September 30th. There so you, you have some time. And and you can travel between, you know, once you're past security, you can travel between terminals. So even if you are traveling through an entirely different terminal, you can make your way to Terminal 3 to see the exhibit and 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 so to answer Paul's question, you know, I did see people who were walking through and pointing at things in the exhibit and talking about it. Um, I heard a kid on a people mover say, "Oh, radios," <laughs> um, and you know, and I did sort of wonder what what's that like? Um, you know, on the one hand, this is an airport that has millions of people coming through every year, so it's as somebody who is curating an exhibit, the potential audience size is just massive. And so that's got to be gratifying. But it's a very different feeling than a quiet museum that people purposefully go to to see a particular exhibit. So um, it, it takes a lot to kind of attract people's attention. So I think there's a lot of interesting design and colorful radios and these large photos. So I think there's a lot to kind of lure people in to take a closer look at the exhibit, even if they're in a hurry, uh, making their way through the airport. And scale is probably part of it as well. I mean, it would be one thing if there was like a little case and there were 10 radios, but with hundreds, with over 100 radios, plus all these other artifacts, you know, I think that's something which often we don't 
kind of take account of, right? It, that, that is part of going to a museum exhibit or, or, or museum-like exhibit is that it, often there's scale associated with it. You're not going to see just this one thing in most cases. Uh, you're going to see quite a bit of, of something. And it's this kind of immersion, I think, which is different than if someone said, hey, cool, uh, come check out my cool radio that I got. <laughs> you know, that's from the 1920s. But when you see uh, radio after radio after radio. And, and, and Jennifer, the, the radios that you mentioned came from uh, the California Radio Historical Society. Well, from a number of places. So, um, you know, there was quite an effort to reach out to local collectors. So uh, there's a lot of material in there that's been lent from the California Historical Radio Society and some of its members. Uh, There's also material from History San Jose um, and, and some photographs that have been, you know, acquired from other places as well. So, um, you know, I, I, I talked to um, Daniel Calderon, the curator, about it. And he said, "Yeah, one of the hardest, one of the most difficult things was actually figuring out through, you know, sifting through all of these possibilities and and deciding what to include in the exhibit." And you had a chance to catch up with one of the chief lenders, <laughs> somebody who who put yes. quite a bit of his own personal radio stash uh, into the exhibit, right? Uh, his name is Steve Cushman. Jennifer, you spoke with Steve Cushman, the president of the California Radio Historical Society at his home where he has a huge collection that he lent out to the SFO Museum where the exhibit was. He's president of the California Historical Radio Society. And uh, you were able to talk with him and here he's going to tell us a little bit more kind of of, of the history of the Historical Society, working with the SFO Museum. It was 1997 or 1998. The museum actually contacted us, and they said, we're going to do a radio exhibit at the airport. Can you guys help us? And at that time, we didn't have a place, and my collection was smaller, and we drove around to many of our members. That time there was probably 20 members involved in the exhibit. So they did this exhibit in 1999. They did a huge radio exhibit. I think it was in the same terminal. And that's how they done that's how they found us. And since then I have been we've been part of television exhibits that they've done there. And I think I've had some phonographs out there. And so since then, there we're kind of the, the we're, we're on their list of people to go to get stuff. Got it. And then when Dan called me and he came out and saw Jamie's collection and Jamie's got all the Ramblers, mm. and he says, "Well, I think you should go see Steve." And then when Dan got here, it was like one-stop shopping. So he spent <laughs> a couple, at least two days here, you know, looking at stuff. Wow. So that's how we got connected. And it's nice for people to be able to see this stuff. And, you know, uh, people take it, you know, especially the younger people, just take it all for granted now. And and they don't realize, you know, w- what was put into it and, and how these technologies came out of nowhere and were developed. And, you know, I think it's important to learn all this stuff. And that's what we try to teach. Yeah, we're going to do more classes there, and uh, it really is important that 
you know, we get youngsters in there. Yeah. That's the other thing. Most of the people there uh, at CHRS are look like me, have no hair or gray hair, and we're looking for younger people. And we're finding them. We're finding actually people in the community now that we are in a community and easy to get to. We're finding younger people in their 20s and 30s, even 40s, who, you know, are interested in the stuff. We actually have a member who's 14 years old, and he can solder and repair radios as well as the next guy. So he's our future. That's the voice of Steve Cushman, president of the California Historical Radio Society, talking about his collection of radios. And I love the fact that, you know, here on Radio Survivor, we often, not often, we always talk about the content of radio. And we'll, we'll go back and talk about what was on the radio 100 years ago. But um, with, a, with a rare exception, we never really talk about these physical objects, the, the radios themselves. And that's partly because... Um, I mean, I care more about people than I care about boxes and technology. But these boxes housing these technologies, um, they in themselves were uh, quite beautiful. And I guess that's really the point of this exhibit. Yeah, Steve here is going to describe uh, one particularly interesting uh, radio and, and give us a better sense for sort of the, the aesthetics that are on display here. The Mystic Bug was uh, a radio made by the Brush Company, and the Brush was a, a, a pottery company, and I don't know if Brush Pottery may still exist, but in the old days, um, in, the, in the early days of radio, they created three ceramic radios, uh, glazed ceramic radios. One was called the Mystic Bug, which looked like a big green beetle, uh, the other one was called um, the rolling pin, which like was a ceramic-fired rolling pin-looking thing. And the other one, I believe, was a wall pocket also. And uh, the reason that these were so rare, uh, because very few of them exist, because, for example, if your mystic bug is sitting on the table next to you, and you've got an aerial hooked up to it, and you've got a ground wire hooked up to it, and you've got headphones hooked up to it, and if you stand up quickly, you're going to pull that thing right off the table and onto the floor. So I don't know if there were not a lot of them made, but you don't see very many of them. And they're actually just early crystal sets with a crystal detector built into fine American pottery. That's beautiful. Is that something that you had been searching for for a while? I've had it a long time. You know, I, I, uh, I, I, I didn't search for it, but when I saw it and realized they existed, uh, one came up and I was able to get it. It's really pretty amazing. It really is. Um, do you have any... I mean, that was one of my favorites. Do you have any favorite items that... Um, that you lent for the exhibit? I would, I would say probably the bug or the, or, or the World's Fair radios or, or, or some of the mirrored sets. I like them all. You know, the mirrored sets are really nice too. Do you have any suggestions for people going to the exhibit um, 
of things that you think they shouldn't miss? Because probably a lot of people are going to be passing by pretty quickly. There's a whole case of very interesting coin-operated radios that were in motels and things that you could put in a dime or put in a quarter uh, for a certain, you know, for an hour of airtime. And uh, that, that, you know, folks should see because they have some nice graphics on them. Um, boy, it's all interesting, you know. It, it, look at every case because every case has got something different. But for all those different cases, the end product is the same. It's what comes out of the, it's the sound that comes out, you know. So I would see I you know I would say to people just look at it and enjoy it all because you're not going to see it again probably. Right. Yeah. They're like his babies, right? You can't you can't choose one yeah. favorite child it's, that's, there. That's the voice of it's Steve true. Cushman, yeah. the president of the California Historical Radio Society talking about his babies, his collection of radios and um and they're on display now yeah. at uh, the San Francisco International Airport at a exhibit called on the radio. And it, it's just listening to him describe his pleasure in the different designs of the different boxes. I realized that, I mean, we're talking about when radio was young and it was the sexy new technology. And I, uh, I hate to sound like an old fogey, but it's like the, the sexy new technologies now are so screen based that there's a, there's very, there's a whole lot less design concern around like what, what you know you buy a, a $3000 device to get you the newest in media technologies or more and it's really just a big flat screen housed in invisible in an invisible box and yet people ood and odd over the very first iPhone right it's something which you know we all now take for granted uh because it's been around for something sure. on the order of 11 years but i but go back to the to the, the iPod the design of it all in the iPod well, right cuz at least the yeah. iPod had a button <laughs> right, well, and, you could look at and ex- enjoy a button. Yeah, I mean, and, and Steve Cushman is a kindred spirit because I grew up in a household where I went to antique shows with my parents, and yeah, um, and and this whole had this whole interest in history, and and you know, I, I even spoke with him in this interview about yeah, they don't really make things like they used to, and and there was such a focus on design in everyday objects. Um, in, in the past and not just in radios, but in, in other items that you used in everyday life. Um, my dad's a collector of antique safety razors and the design is incredible. If you go back and look at them over the years and, and like radios, there were novelty designs. There were, you know, very intricate, um, art deco designs. And, uh, I, I think we live in a much more disposable culture today so in radios and in a lot of things, um, there, there was just such a focus on design. And that's really clear in this exhibit. Um, and, and there were many famous designers that worked on radios. So, so even somebody who is interested in the world of design, the exhibit is quite interesting to see connections with furniture makers um, and you know, famous names like the Eames um, had a role in, in making radios. So it, it it is quite beautiful, and I'm I'm definitely a sucker for for vintage design. Well, you mentioned the novelty radios, um, and I always find this sort of fascinating: <laughs> the idea of oh, trying to yeah. shoehorn radios into these different, uh, uh, you know, 
very, in many ways, uh, not electronic specific, not radio specific kind of, of packages. But we'll let uh, Steve Cushman better describe it than I can. You know, we have the novelties that look like tape measures and whiskey bottles and any, anything you can think of. You know, fans. You saw the fan radio, mm-hmm. uh, the Toshiba fan out there. There's just tons, tons of them. Here's a, here's a, here's one Dan didn't take. What's happening, Jennifer? What's he doing? He's, he's walking over oh, to binoculars. show me something. Yeah, it's the binodia. These are regular binoculars, Whoa. but in, in, <laughs> in the case, in the top of the case, oh, this is terrible. In the top of the case, there's a radio in the bino- in the binocular case. So can you use the binoculars sure. while you're listening to the radio? Sure. <laughs> and I have another one. I have another one somewhere that is the, where the binocular the radio is actually built into the binocular. So I don't know what that is. That's cool. I was I was visiting a, a college radio station and the general manager showed me this Bible he had that had a radio. It's like hidden in a Bible. They made several versions of book radios. Crosley made them between 1956 and 1955 He's like a font of information. <laughs> and the deal was they were a crossover, and they had two transistors and three sub-miniature tubes in them, and um, they were made in books for some reason. So I suspect that the book radio exists so that you can sneak it into class or sneak it sure. into a library. Exactly. Right, where, you know, we sort of take for granted again that we have this tiny device that you very easily slip into a pocket or something, but a radio was not such a device, especially in the 1950s yet. So being able to, you know, have a this book that looks like, you know, just looks like a book, but it's really a radio. Allows right. you to, to catch up on the game, follow the World Series when you're uh, stuck in class. <laughs> So some of the some of the novelty radios in the exhibit were really some of them were quite funny. There was Mork from Ork, the Mork from Ork eggship radio, which was you know from the television series Mork and Mindy. Um, there was a radio that was this large sandwich. It was very odd. Yummy. Um, a can- one that looked like a camera. Uh, sunglasses. It just looked like a regular pair of sunglasses, but it was a radio built in. Uh, a lamp, like a, a table lamp that had a radio hidden in it. So, yeah, those those really ran the gamut of, you know, pop culture references and the novelty radios to everyday objects that you wouldn't realize a radio <laughs> was kind of hidden in. It reminds me of a meme I just saw go by yesterday on Twitter where it was a professor or teacher, I don't know, you know, uh, saying that uh, he had uh, banned smartphones use during this long math exam. He said, because often students like to listen to music while they do this, but he said, you know, I banned it so because you, you know, I don't want you to have possible access to the internet. And some kid uh, brought in his suitcase Crosley record player <laughs> and was jamming out to Jay-Z <laughs> on the headphones. Wow. And I prove- was thinking that kid could have used that one of those right. radios, Just right? to prove that there was no internet involved. Exactly. But he still wanted to, you know, that, that the uh, that, music would be a study aid. <laughs> that, that reminds me of just uh, like listening to this discussion where, you know, um, Radio, the idea of radio being in the center of, of our lives I- I- earlier in the 20th century, you know, is an echo of how the internet is in the center of our lives mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. But 
our internet devices are, like I said, they're just big screens. They're mostly invisible. The device itself is is secondary to 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 the internet to the yeah. to whatever a web designer comes up with for the page, and that's all that matters as far as design goes. But here with the radios, um, the boxes themselves began to really matter. You know, like he was referencing um, Steve Cushman was referencing a mirrored set, and he was and earlier in this uh, podcast we were talking about Bakelite, and there's all these there's just so much like you were saying, Jennifer. There's so much design, um, mostly because. Uh, the primary medium at that time was just sound. Yeah. So they needed to get some visuals. <laughs> I never thought of it that the way. Box. You know, and, and Jennifer, well, and, sorry, go ahead, Jennifer. Oh, and, and, and think about these very large pieces of furniture that you would have too. And, and there were a few very large radios in the exhibit, you know, like you would have in your room, you know, imagine you might have seen these in photos of, of people sitting around in their living room, listening to a radio that, you know, kind of is the size of a fireplace. Um, and it, it's, you know, and then television sort of became like that, this large object in the middle of the room that you would focus your attention on. And so, so there, there's that sort of momentous feel to some of the early radios, um, and then you ha- end up having transistor radios that fit in your pockets. So a lot of changes happen in in the shape and size of radios, like over the course of what's represented in this exhibit, too. It's really like a precursor to what we've seen with, around screens, that the screen once is this big thing that is in your in your uh, living room. Then maybe right. now it's a little smaller in your bedroom, but still this thing that's very fixed. And now like a radio, the transistor allows you to put it in a pocket and take it with you. Now we take our screens with us, but uh, back to that idea of the big radio. I mean, that's something you talked about uh, with Daniel Calderon, who's the curator of the uh, on the radio exhibit there at the SFO museum at the San Francisco international airport. Cause he talked a little bit about his own history with uh, with a radio in his own house. We had a RCA console radio that was in our garage that had come with my with my family's house. It's about ten years old, and I was just fascinated with this thing for some reason. And my um, uh, grandfather was a professional radio repairman. We still had some of his tube testers and gear and things, and expressed my interest to my dad about it. And he helped me. And, you know, he took all the tubes out and tested all the tubes and got some replacement tubes. And he helped me put a new power cord on it because the cord was frayed. And I refinished it, and got it to work, and you know, ten, eleven year old kid listening to this old AM RCA radio station. We had this great big band station in Los Angeles at the time. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> It's amazing. <laughs> but you think now a lot of people take apart their electronics. That's how people learn, especially young people, uh, you know, learning how to fix their own iPhone or fix their own computer. But also there is this, you know, there are people on YouTube taking apart radios, taking apart tube gear and, and learning how all of that works. So it's sort of fascinating to hear uh, the, the curator's own uh, history and all of that. And you are listening to Radio Survivor. This is the Sound is Strong Communities. Jennifer Waits joins us from San Francisco via Skype, and she's helping us go on a virtual tour of uh, or an exhibit of radio and radio paraphernalia that's right now at the San Francisco International Airport Museum. It's called On the Radio, and she had a chance to talk with Daniel Calderon, who's the curator. And she also talked with Steve Cushman, who's the president of the California Historical Radio Society a group and a person who... Uh, 
loaned a ton of stuff, <laughs> tons of radios and radio related stuff uh, for this exhibit. My yeah. name is Paul Reesmanell, and joining me is Eric Klein. Uh, and Eric Klein wants to know more about the that magazine, the radio magazines that are on display at the San Francisco yeah, airport. I guess you need to go. Oh yeah. yeah, you need to go. Well, it's a magazine <laughs> from the twenties, and and I mean, it appears that they sort of uh, uh, blew up the the covers so that um, you can really see them in all their great detail. Yeah, good design. And just amazing illustrations showing, you know, radio in all sorts of contexts in the 1920s. Some of this is online. There, there's, in fact, a couple of, I'll, I'll try to get them into the show notes, a couple of online archives of radio magazines. Right, of course. I'm going to read them. And there's, and, and I also want to point out that there's an online component to this exhibit that oh. has some amazing photographs from the exhibit and um, a lot of text uh, that walks you through the history of radio and some of the materials. So um, the museum staff did an incredible job and they also have an accompanying uh, booklet that that even opens up into something that I think I want to put on my wall. It's a really beautiful... It's a radio centerfold. It's a radio centerfold. Um, so yeah, there's some pretty pretty lovely photos so you can get even if you can't make it to san francisco you can see a bit of the exhibit in their online exhibit and i also have a number of photographs in my post on radio survivor yeah go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast just look for episode number 138 and we'll have links to all these things so you can take a look at it online and and i think what was also interesting to me about your conversation uh, with Daniel Calderon, who's the curator of this exhibit, uh, was, you know, he's connecting it back to uh, Bay Area radio history um, and certainly stuff I'd never heard of before. Um, so we'll have him tell us a little bit more about some of this history that he connects to the exhibit there. I found it really fascinating that uh, the first scheduled radio broadcasts happened um, in San Jose. In the Bay Area, 1912 to 1917, uh, Charles Harold and his wife Sybil from the Harold College of Engineering and Wireless were hosting mm-hmm. weekly radio broadcasts for Professor Harold's um, uh, radio students just to have something to listen to. And you, um, he was arranging for the broadcasts, actually um, made a lot of the different um, items that they were using in the um, uh, at, at, at the station there, and um, uh, his wife Siddle was in charge, I think, of a lot of the programming, um, uh, spinning records, like the first DJ ever, and all that happened in, in, in the Bay Area. So that's uh, the curator of the SFO Museum on the radio exhibit, Daniel Calderon, giving us a history lesson about how, in 1912, uh, the first scheduled radio broadcasts originated uh, right there in what was later to become Silicon Valley, which uh, there you go. We've tied the knot between the internet and the radio way, culture. Way before they were using silicon, right. when they were using tubes. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting story about Charles Doc Harold and his, his station, uh, KQW in San Jose, that was transmitting from 1912 to 1917. Wow. And, and it's really a precursor of KCBS um, hmm. now in San Francisco. And, you know, it, 
it could be considered maybe one of the first college radio stations uh, because he was running a school, a radio ah. school, so to speak. So here so, we are, the first radio station could, there's an argument to be made that the first radio station <laughs> with, scheduled broadcast. with scheduled broadcast coming out of San Jose in uh, 106 years ago. Was was also a college wow. station. Wow, Jennifer. And I guess, and well, I guess my, you know, you know how I am about my first claims. Yeah, um, it may be the first college radio station in the San Francisco Bay Area, hmm. which I, I've, you know, I've been trying to figure that one out for a while, and so this possibly. Possibly. If you think of, if you think of this as college or college radio, I mean, it certainly sounds like it. I mean, it, it, it was programmed for students, apparently. For their consumption. Right. But the reason why Jennifer Waits is reluctant to uh, give it that first <laughs> label is because uh, their experience has always been, there's always there's always more to right. dig out yes. in the history of the radio. provisional first. Yeah. As <laughs> yes. far as we know at this moment in time, it, it could very well be the first, and yet there's always a chance to dig some other nugget of history out of, out of the darkness, out of the dust, and uh, proving that there was a different first or a, uh, a, another first. But I, I agree. It's um, I, th- I think anybody interested in Silicon Valley history should take a look also because uh, there there were a lot of interesting technological advancements in the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, going back um, way before anybody was building computers. So this is just a piece of that. Yeah, it's neat. And I I was reminded when we're talking about this exhibit in the San Francisco Airport Museum, we learned earlier that. Uh, that it had first run a similar uh, iteration of the exhibit of radios had run in the '90s, and now it's back up in the in the museum at the airport here, uh, thirty years later, twenty twenty something. And it occurs to me that children going through the airport in the '90s would know exactly what a radio was. The physical object of the radio clearly was also somewhere in their home, and these days. Uh, Decreasingly so. Yeah, not so much. Like yeah. they know what a radio is because they drive around in cars all the time. But uh, but there are fewer tabletop radios. There are fewer transistor radios in people's pockets. Yeah, that's so. a good point. Jennifer, thank you so much for visiting the on the radio exhibit at the San Francisco International Airport. You said it's in Terminal Three, right? The United Terminal. Terminal 3, past security. Past security. And thanks for talking with Daniel Calderon, who is uh, the curator and clearly uh, a fellow radio nerd. I hope he doesn't mind my <laughs> saying that because it's said with love and affection that I, the, I'm, I'm glad he's a member of the community. Oh, yeah, in the best possible way. Yes. And, and he spent, you know, maybe a couple hours with me going through the exhibit. So That's it was exciting. that was truly a pleasure. And Thank you, you, Daniel. And you wrote about that on radiosurvivor.com if people want to see the pictures that you took or find links to the exhibit there. Yeah. And thanks for talking with Steve Cushman, going over to his house and visiting with him to see some more radios. He uh, loaned uh, uh, 70-some radios and other things uh, for the exhibit, and he's president of the California Historical Radio Society. And we'll hear more from Steve uh, in a later episode, because, Jennifer, you're going to go visit uh, their there is it is it a museum is that what you would call it their 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 site their clubhouse their place their clubhouse in Alameda <laughs> California well yeah we're going to have to explain that more on another episode yeah. but yeah the California Historical Radio Society um is is building 
you know, they're, they're in the process of building, um, this space that they're calling radio central in Alameda, California. And, and folks can visit on various volunteer days at the moment. Mm. Um, but it's not, it's not open as a full fledged museum yet. So I'm going to catch up with him and, and hear about the progress next week. And it, I just want to like underline again how I love this, you know, usually on Radio Survivor, our, our goal, our main uh, motivating force is the content of the radio, the people that put things on the radio. And uh, I'd like to, the idea of these uh, extremely highly sought after and beautifully designed uh, boxes, the devices that bring the radio into the house, uh, being, being an object of, um, to love I feel like there's something to tease out in that. And I think I'm not bringing that up just to distract us, but that's a, that's my segue into the next topic where people making radio, uh, is, is what we're going to talk about next, but it's people who, who make radio, but who don't have a license, who don't have permission, (laughs) don't have permission from the federal government or the federal communications commission. So otherwise known as pirates, often known as pirate radio. And it's a topic we we've talked about quite a bit on radio survivor because what we, what we're sort of uncovering and teasing out is that people who make radio without a license, they're not necessarily people who intend to break the law. They're not on the high seas stealing other people's uh, yeah. goods and booty. Right. They're, they're broadcasters who have, who have a community and a mission. There's a reason they're taking the airwaves. And, and in many cases, they may be ignorant of the law. They may have a misunderstanding of the law, as we've learned. Um, in some cases, they may not care about the law. And, in, and often, you know, I like to draw a parallel to, to like an everyday infraction like speed, speeding, right? People will often speed on the highway. Yeah, but speeding is, I don't, that's dangerous. People die. Yeah, well. No one, no one is being hurt by the pirates taking. But it's an everyday infraction or, or even like, uh, I guess, uh, uh, walking against the signal, jaywalking, right? Again, even still worse. (laughs) But there's something that people do every day. Right. Most people do every day. At some point you exceed the speed limit, you 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 walk against the, the walk sign, you and and it's one of these things you know the risks and you know that you could be ticketed, right? You know that you could be fined, and yet nevertheless you sort of go forward. And I think that in many ways, despite the, the perilous nature sometimes of speeding, uh nevertheless, uh that's sort of I think how a lot of uh unlicensed broadcasters view what they do. They they, they look at it as a as a as a risk liability kind of kind of equation and come down and decide that the risk is worth taking on. However, as we've learned here on Radio Survivor, talking to people like Professor John Anderson from Brooklyn College, talking to David Gorin, who uh, does the Brooklyn Pirate Watch and is making the Brooklyn Pirate Map, um, in some places like Brooklyn, New York, or in Boston, Massachusetts, in Southern Florida, uh, there are more illicit unlicensed broadcasters and there are licensed broadcasters and it does become a bit of a problem on the dial. It does get very congested. Often they are interfering with each other and in some cases interfering with lights and signals, maybe not ones that are right around the corner, but maybe a little distant and broadcasters in New York, broadcasters in Massachusetts, broadcasters on in Florida have been uh, really lobbying the FCC big business license to do more about it. Yes. Yes. And, uh, uh, the FCC says it is, and it's been in the news lately for a couple of reasons. Uh, first off, we recently learned of a raid 
of a pirate radio station, two pirate radio stations on March 26th in the Dorchester neighborhood of Boston. Okay. And so there's this one station that called itself Big City FM that the FCC watched for over a decade. They first visited this station in 2007, issuing a notice of unlicensed operation. That's the FCC's first notice. They send you this piece of paper that says, we found a signal. We believe it's coming from your place. Uh, shut it down and or answer this notice. Then the following year, they issued what's called a notice of, of apparent liability. Basically a fine that said, look, we really think you're doing this. We really think you're operating a station illegally. Can I ask what you the owe us content, this content of this Boston radio station was and what kind of people were operating the I place? Can't, I don't have okay. that answer. <laughs> I got a little bit about it, but we'll, we'll just kind of let me let me finish the story. Then we can pull it apart. Um, so they issued the, the, the person they thought was operating this station, a, a notice of apparent liability, basically a fine for $10,000 in 2008. The person never answered the letter. So the FCC sued him. And this is, this is unusual. The FCC doesn't, uh, sue many people for these fines in court. It doesn't usually reach this too often, but they sued him in 2009 and won by default because he didn't answer the suit. <laughs> and so he still didn't pay up. So then in 2013, so this is uh, four years after winning this suit by default, uh, the U.S. attorney on behalf of the FCC referred the case to the Treasury for collection because the Treasury collects fines on behalf of the federal government. Then in 2014, the FCC received additional anonymous complaints about this station and the FCC went looking and found it again. We hear nothing until 2016 when the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association complains to the FCC about the station. Then on January 30th of this year, 2018, the FCC field office, an agent went and returned to the station, found that it was now broadcasting on two frequencies (laughs) and went to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston who issued a seizure complaint. Uh, which was executed then on March 26th when they seized the station. So on the whole, it was 11 years that this station was on the air uh, the FCC was tangling with. And, and I thank John Anderson of DIYmedia.net for providing this kind of rundown. He did the, the heavy research of looking through the complaint uh, and, and documenting the station. Um, and the station kind of operated like a local station. In fact, I guess the morning show had featured live interviews with state and local officials like Governor Charlie Baker and the police commissioner, William Evans. And it looks like a freeform music station from what I can glean off the internet. Uh, Exactly. And uh, at the same time, a second station uh, was also raided that was basically operating, had its antenna and transmitter in the same basic area. Uh, Some sort of collateral damage. (laughs) People looking at it. Uh, And, you know, we don't see a lot of these sorts of raids. So this certainly marks a certain escalation. I understand that there have been uh, recently uh, around the same time a raid in New York and a raid in Southern Florida. I don't have more information about those. Um, so there is this little escalation, but you can also see how it took 11 years for this to happen. Um, and so what is also now happening is that in Congress, a bill has been introduced called the Pirate Act, the Preventing Illegal Radio Abuse Through Enforcement Act. Um, uh, introduced by yeah, <laughs> uh, federal representatives love these acronyms. Um, it's introduced by New Jersey representative Leonard Lance and New Jersey, uh, New York representative Paul Toko. 
And this act would increase the maximum fine for operating an illegal radio station from $19,639 a day to $100,000 a day. Whoa. And then it would increase the maximum fine to $2 million, uh, up from currently $147,290. And then the legislation would also require the FCC to conduct at least two annual raids in the cities with the highest concentration of pirate broadcasts. Wow, forcing their hand. As forcing their hand. Because I was going to say, that, um, as I understand it, and I'm no expert, uh, the raids on pirate stations it was, has been very rare in the last, like... It have been rare in general. 20 years. Because you have to well, understand... can you explain what happens in a raid? Uh, well, um, my understanding is that the FCC are not police. So first of all, the FCC may not undertake a raid on their own. The FCC requires the assistance of police, typically federal marshals. A raid requires, just like it would in any other circumstance, it requires a warrant. In this case, it's a warrant for the seizure of broadcast equipment. So you have to bring in the assistance of a U.S. attorney in in the city where it's happening, then the federal marshals, and of course, a judge has to approve the warrant. So all these things have to be in order, in which case they may come, um, they may gain entry to the premises. In, in, I mean, it's it's a raid, so most of the time I think they just knock and people open the door and they, they take, take and this the stuff. Is, and this is because people are playing music over the radio right. without permission. It seems... It seems... Um, it seems... Lopsided, yeah, a lopsided and- <laughs> response to to because uh, you're you're using the metaphor of speeding and jaywalking, right. and I I hate that because again, jaywalking you might be putting your life at risk. Speeding you really might be hurting the somebody. Broadcasters, there's the no one being hurt by a radio. Broadcasters, well, they like to say there's economic ban- damage, right? That if they're interfering with licensed stations, um, and sometimes these licensed stations are community stations. I know WFMU in New- in Jersey City, New Jersey often has difficulty being broadcast into Brooklyn and New York City because there are pirate stations on the same frequency. Um, As well, there are claims sometimes made that uh, because the aircraft band begins at 108 megahertz at the top of the FM band, poorly designed transmitters have the potential to create interference. Sure. There's been no proven cases of damage, but that is a claim that is made. In fact, the Israeli government uses that frequently mm-hmm. to shut down pirates in Israel. But I know that John Anderson on the program, you know, years ago made an argument of harm reduction instead of, you know, instead of sending in uh, armed officers of the law to to break down the door and stop this stop this illegal radio, uh, you could just send someone else to knock on the door and be like, "Did you know that if you put your antenna here, and if you changed this piece of equipment like this, all of that harm would be redu- reduced. Well, right. He, and he brings a metaphor to sort of, you know, uh, harm reduction, which happens with, say, opioid drug usage or intravenous drug usage. You know, that rather than just simply busting people as, as a way and putting them in jail, perhaps if you provide counseling services, you provide right. clean needles, you can, but again, you can stem the, people, the spread of People of making diseases. community radio without permission has so much, so much, it's a good thing as opposed to intravenous drug use, which, you know, has its has its detractions. Yeah, well, you know, nevertheless, you've got a lot of folks uh, putting their sights on pirate radio, sure. and it's something which uh, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, a uh, Republican appointed by President Trump, um, is 
saying quite a bit about, much yeah. more so than we've heard from an FCC commissioner in quite some time. Well, all of this news makes me want to dig in more to this big city radio in Boston and find out more. I've already been Googling, and I'm silently watching videos as we speak of their work, and what they are doing looks like legitimate awesome community radio i want to turn up the sound right now to play it and so uh interesting news thank you for bringing well, us the story th- there's more going on yeah that's not the end of the story well, of course not <laughs> uh that uh right now you know uh fcc commissioner g Pai was just at the national association of broadcasters conference where he made pirate radio a specific mention in his address to the conference um, and assuring broadcasters that it's a top enforcement priority and he likes to claim that uh, there have been 306 investigations and 210 notices of apparent uh, notices of unlicensed operation since he took over the FCC in January of 2017. He says that there have been twice as many actions against pirate broadcasters. But as we've learned uh, on our podcast, talking with uh, John Anderson and David Gorin uh, and talking to John many times, is that he calls the FCC a paper tiger because they're mostly sending out paper notices and it's not as if uh, broadcasting without a license doesn't carry with it some risks. Uh, we understand that in places like uh, Brooklyn and Boston and Miami, uh, there's sort of a, a sort of critical mass in some ways, I think that uh, make enforcement very difficult. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it makes you wonder, right. As you were saying uh, along the lines of, you know, on the one hand, is there harm reduction? Could there be ways in which, uh, folks who are on the air without a license could be helped to make their uh, presence less pernicious. Yeah. But also, it makes you wonder, it, it, doesn't this indicate that there is an enormous pent-up demand for community radio? Here are people who are taking some amount of risk to do something against the law uh, because it matters to them. Something about making radio with their community, with their friends, with the people that yeah, that they're making radio. Yeah, they're making radio. It's it's art. And the fact that there aren't more licenses available is not a fact of the world. It is not a fact of physics, right? It is not as if there's simply no place for radio stations. Sure. It is a fact of the way in which radio stations are licensed and managed in the United States. Uh, in New Zealand, there's two parts of the FM band that are set aside specifically for people to use unlicensed with up to a watt of power. And in a place like Brooklyn uh, or Boston or Miami, that one watt of power would be probably enough to satisfy the purposes of all these different stations if they wanted to use these two bands. Also, there is a bunch of spectrum just to the left of the FM radio dial. So uh, left of 88 you know, uh, 0.1 FM, more or less 87.9 FM, that right now is barely used. It's only used by channel five and six television stations, uh, but only analog ones, which barely exist anymore. And once they sunset, there is more frequencies that could potentially be allocated to FM and would only require FM radios be extended a little bit. But even there's a bunch of frequencies there that most FM station uh, radios could pick up. I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which uh, community radio could be expanded and the opportunity for radio could be expanded in ways that might provide a little bit more, uh, a little bit more room, uh, you know, take a little bit of this pressure off, which frankly uh, we have to point out that right now that this sort of presence of pirate radio in the United States is sort of unprecedented. I found my, we were at at an all time high. I found my metaphor. It's like an illegal mural. 
It's like somebody going up to a blank wall in the city and painting a mural on it without permission. That is, that is breaking a law. That is graffiti. But in the end, you've taken a blank wall and you've, you've painted it. And people can look at it and appreciate it. Or community gardens. Yeah, on, that, that people plant sometimes on 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 empty, fallow land that isn't being used. Yeah, I think it's possible. You know, but if you are one of the radio stations being interfered with, you would have a very right. different perspective. Yeah. If you on owned the that pirates. wall and you didn't want yeah. art on it, you have the private property rights to uh to to or, keep you know, from like painting if, on it. If you yeah. have a radio station being interfered with, it would be, you know, you would have a mural that somebody has right. painted Someone over. painted over the mural, right. which also happens. Well, and this is why sometimes then communities... With an uglier mural. <laughs> ...create public art programs, create community garden programs, try to find ways of taking this positive yeah. energy and and putting it in a place where it, it not, not only is permissible, but might also be protected. Yeah. You know, and, and not be so subject to being taken down or painted over. I thought, you know, it's really interesting to me that with Low Power FM, the most recent round of licensing, people with pirate radio pass were not allowed. Well, that's always to, been the case. That's been the but, case, always. But yet you could you can have a pirate radio pass and start a full power station. Correct. Without restrictions. Indeed. Yeah, it, so was, it that, was inserted by Congress back in 2000. Because it, when it was it was at the behest of the National Association of Broadcasters, who were looking to kill low power FM, period, and so had convinced Congress to uh, create all sorts of uh, barriers. The first of which, the most important of which, was uh, making low power FM stations obey the same spacing on the dials of full power station. Which is why you did not have low power FM in places like Chicago, San Francisco, yeah, New York, and effectively LA. Effectively stopping it from growing in the city at until all. yeah, until the twenty first late you know until recently until uh, twenty thirteen when those licenses started to be issued. And right now there is right now we do not know if there will be another opportunity for low power FM community radio stations. There's no window set uh, for license applications to be submitted we don't know if it will ever happen again um and the fm dial just keeps getting more and more crowded as you know there'll be more full power station opportunities though not in places like chicago new york la and on and then there will be probably opportunities for translator stations repeater stations which are just like low power fm stations take up the same space in the dial but may only repeat the signal of a full power station so um in many ways, as, as we report on this, it seems to be a very kind of, it's like an untenable situation. It seems unlikely that there's that there that the FCC will have the the person power and the enforcement power to take pirate radio stations off the air in places where they proliferate, uh, like they do in Brooklyn or Massachusetts or Florida. And at the same time, there seems to be no kind of mitigation policy or harm reduction policy, which might provide opportunities for people to uh, broadcast in a way which, uh, again, creates less harm and is, is perhaps a little bit more manageable. So we'll continue to watch and see what happens. Yeah, Radio Survivor will continue to follow the what's going on in the culture of unlicensed broadcasting in both the United States and in the world. Well, so we go from radios, we go from to uh, unlicensed broadcasting. We'd love to know what you think. Drop us a line. Send us an email to podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter if you'd like to use those social media platforms to speak with us and 
Our show is available as a podcast, and we're on radio stations all around North America. So however you like to listen to us, we're there. But if you do like to listen as a podcast, please subscribe to us. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, TuneIn, Radio Public, pretty much any place you can hear a podcast, you can hear us. If you subscribe, then you'll never miss a show. This is a listener and reader-supported enterprise, so if you can give us a hand, Please find out how at radiosurvivor.com slash support. Jennifer, thanks for joining us for another edition of the show. Happy to be here. Jennifer Waits, our, our roving radio tourist, college radio expert, high school radio expert, and, uh, and radio exhibit correspondent. Thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> Eric Klein. Always a pleasure, guys. Uh, see you again next week, Radio Survivors. Thank you.